Good morning, and thank you for tuning in to RTHK. This is China Takes Over the World, a program that explores the rise of China's economic, political, and military power. I am Ying Ma. We are delighted to have with us this morning Mr. Kenneth Jarrett, President of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, also known as AmCham Shanghai. Ken is a retired U.S. Foreign Service officer whose postings as a diplomat included U.S. Consul General in Shanghai and Deputy Consul General in Hong Kong. Later in the program, we will speak with Andrew Brown of the Wall Street Journal about China's foreign policy and domestic reforms. First, uh, we say good morning to Ken Jarrett. Ken, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Ying. It's a pleasure to be with you and with my many friends in Hong Kong. <laughs> well, earlier this week, AmCham Shanghai released its China Business Report for 2013 to 2014. The report is one of the longest serving—I'm sorry, longest running surveys of American businesses in China, and it tracks their responses on topics including top-line business performance, growth expectations, challenges, and trends to watch. So it's great to have you here, Ken, to talk to us about the survey's findings. Uh, uh, to begin with, um, Ken, are U.S. businesses doing well in China, and are they still optimistic about the China market?、Uh, yes, they're still quite optimistic. I mean, just to give you a sense or some context for the survey itself, we had almost 400 companies that replied, which was about 22 percent response rate. Which is quite good for a survey of this type. And as you mentioned, we've been conducting the survey for many years, so we have a lot of comparative data that is useful and helps us with the analysis. And in terms of the companies that did reply, fifty-three、uh, percent were in the service、uh, services sector, thirty-six percent in manufacturing, twelve percent in retail, and over half of them have been operating in China for over ten years. So it's an experienced group, but it's also a group that has diversity across various sectors. The, the, we do ask each year what is the five-year outlook in terms of your optimistic or not, and this year the response、uh, was 86 percent. Now that was a, a little bit down from last year, 91 percent. But if you look back at the last four or five years, you know, the level of optimism for this five-year outlook has been、uh, more or less in this 86 to, to low 90s percentage range. So、uh, overall, you know, it's still a group that's feeling、uh, good about how things are looking. And what about profitability? Yeah, so profitability, you know, here too, majority of companies actually are still、uh, profitable. So the top line performance is strong. Seventy-four、uh, percent reported that they were profitable.、Uh, this was、uh, one point higher than last year.、Uh, this level, it's been pretty stable over the last four years. And of course, oh nine, you know, the post financial crisis, you know, that was a. a A different year, but if you look at the last four years, the levels of profitability have been 79 percent, 80, 78 73 percent, and 74 percent. And then the majority also are showing revenue growth over last year. That was true for 67 percent of the respondents, and 47 percent had improved、uh, margins. Although that number is has been showing slippage over the last few years. What are some of the key macro trends that the survey shows? Well, the biggest trend actually is a shift toward the services sector, both in terms of where our member companies are active, as well as where most of their revenue is coming from.、Uh, in fact, this was the first year where services accounted for the majority of, of revenue for our company. So it's a bit of a, a turning point, but also one actually that makes sense if you think about first 
in China itself, uh, the components of GDP you know, have shifted uh, towards services now. And then Shanghai itself is a very services-oriented uh, economy. And even though our member companies operate throughout the country, uh, I, they still are heavily centered here in the Yangtze River Delta. So you could say the arrival of the services sector, you know, that would be one key macro trend. But the emphasis is in Shanghai, that this trend toward services is most prominent in the city of Shanghai? uh, uh, Yes, that's where it's most pronounced. Even for the Shanghai economy, I think now they're at uh, 61% services, which is, I think, probably the highest level of any city in China. So would you say, looking at these results, that the effort by the top Chinese leadership to shift the economy from a manufacturing, export-driven economy to a services economy, that that, in fact, is taking hold and having an effect? Well, I would say for sure in Shanghai it's taking root. Um, you know, even bef- and This has been a Shanghai focus for some time already, where they wanted to move toward both advanced manufacturing and advanced services, and it's consistent uh, with Shanghai's goal to be an international financial center as well as a major logistics hub. So if you look at even Shanghai's priorities, these are very much service sector-oriented. Of course, China overall wants to move in that same direction. So what you're seeing here in Shanghai is is perhaps a preview of what over time will be true across the country. Mm-hmm. What do um, U.S. businesses see as their biggest challenges of doing business in sh- in China? Right. So it is important that you ask that question because <laughs> even though <laughs> when companies are feeling optimistic, but it doesn't mean it's easy. And uh, so here, you know, much of the survey actually focuses on the challenges that they face. And we divide this into two categories. There's what we call sort of operational business challenges and then regulatory challenges. And for the top uh, business challenges, just to give you the top three, uh, these are the rising costs of doing business in China, uh, human resources constraints, and local competition. And this top three, it's actually the same top three in the same order as last year. And then on the regulatory side, the top three are just bureaucracy, an unclear regulatory environment, and the tax administration. And the tax administration, I believe this ranked high uh, because in Shanghai they've been experimenting with some VAT reforms over the last couple of years, and there's been uh, some confusion about that. So, so that the top three on the regulatory side also uh, not uh, different from the previous year. We are speaking with Ken Jarrett of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. Well, in the survey, um, when you guys ask people what are their top um, challenges of doing business in China. You mentioned the top three earlier, the rising cost, uh, um, uh, HR issues, and, and what was the third one? Uh, local competition. Right. So that, I, that was actually, was that, is that number three, local competition? Yes. Okay. Yes. But what I noticed in your survey was that corruption came in fourth. And Yet, corruption is a problem that Chinese citizens tend to cite as one of their biggest complaints against their government. Do you think that U.S. businesses are in a better position to navigate corruption than individual citizens in China? Well, in terms of their ability to put in place, you know, strong compliance systems and have ethics training, uh, be aware of local regulations, uh, yes, I mean, it's, I mean, a company is different from an individual right, citizen right. because a, a company that they're regulating their operations while the citizen maybe, I mean, could be a victim of corruption and there's less that they could do. 
But it's, on the corruption side, what was interesting about this year's survey was the increased attention to the need to comply with local laws and regulations. So there was a big uptick in that figure. And why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because of all of the cases that have developed (laughs) over the last half year. In the past, companies have been very focused on the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act to the U.K. Bribery Act Act, and perhaps felt that that was sufficient. And now they are realizing that, in fact, they also have to pay close attention to China's own uh, compliance requirements. And so that's something where you see in the survey companies have plans to invest more in, in training and to, to strengthen those systems. Sure, sure. Well, uh, GlaxoSmithKline is one of the Western companies that, um, that's right. gotten into trouble. And, you know, it made news last year when the Chinese government went after it. It's uh, GlaxoSmithKline's executives for a bribery scandal. Observers uh, of China have said in the past that a lot of times Western businesses have a tendency to just pay a middleman, a consulting firm, a fee, and then allow the consulting firm to go and bribe whoever the company needs to bribe to do business. And hence, you know, it, it sort of absolves the Western company of any responsibility uh, that way. Do you think that that is still a common practice in China? Well, it's hard. I think uh, maybe I'll let me answer it this way, which is to say that I guess really just to fall back on the survey results and the you know the, the strength and attention that's being paid now to compliance systems. Now, whatever had been practices in the past, I, uh, companies realize that uh, the Chinese government is you know, taking a hard look at these uh, Chinese and foreign companies. You know, they will be under a you know a spotlight of sorts because it's not uncommon for the Chinese government to uh, use foreign companies as examples in the press, perhaps to make a point to Chinese companies. You know, uh, Chinese companies are also under scrutiny, but foreign companies often seem to get a a larger share of media scrutiny. So they know that they have to uh, uh, take measures to make sure that that they don't run afoul of the regulations. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even in the case of the healthcare sector, uh, in the survey, there's some data by industry sector, and it's still actually a sector that feels quite optimistic mm-hmm. and confident about their prospects. Well, in the past year, we, uh, we've we seen a fair amount of news coverage about Western multinationals being forced to confess to violating Chinese regulations in something called the Red Campaign. Uh, China state television station CCTV also launched what one Forbes commentator called a war against Apple. And Mm -hmm. then you mentioned earlier that, you know, that local governments are are paying more attention um, and perhaps um, exercising more scrutiny over Western firms that might, you know, be running afoul of bribery regulations. So ha- ha- has there been sort of a conscious effort by the Chinese government, whether national or local, to target Western companies in the past year or two? Well, that so I can't say that there's, a, I don't know if there's a conscious effort. I mean, there have been, as you mentioned, you know, the Apple case, of course, you know, Starbucks came in for a CCTV special as well. Uh, some of these episodes actually don't play that successfully with the Chinese public, which is an interesting dimension to this. But whether, regardless of what the motivation might be, you know, in terms of the response, because that's what is easier for me to, to speak to, because, you know, I'm spending 
time speaking with uh, American companies in particular about this dynamic, and I know that you know they you know they they, they do want to you know, show that they are sort of operating legally and ethically that they want to contribute back to the community, and they are putting in place you know additional measures to make sure you know, that they are following what the local laws and regulations are. Uh, it is for you know, our member companies, you know, it is a big question of what is the motivation, are there targeted campaigns? This is something that is sort of discussed among uh, the chamber members, but it is something that's difficult for people to come to, you know, an unequivocal uh, conclusion to one way or the other. Well, we have been speaking with Ken Jarrett of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jing. This is China Takes Over the World on RTHK, and I am Ying Ma. Next up, a conversation with Andrew Brown of The Wall Street Journal about China's foreign policy and domestic reforms. Good morning and welcome back to China Takes Over the World on RTHK. I am Ying Ma. In the second half of the show, we are joined by Andrew Brown, senior correspondent and columnist for The Wall Street Journal. His column, China's World, appears in The Wall Street Journal Asia on Wednesdays. Andy, good morning to you. Good morning. Well, thank you for joining us. The story of China's arrival on the global stage as a superpower is partly about how it is wielding its influence overseas and partly about how it is tackling massive challenges at home. We want to talk to you about both of those aspects of the China story today. And let's start with China's foreign policy. In your December 17th column titled Turbulence Ahead for U.S.-China Ties, you wrote, quote, China now feels it is dealing with the U.S. as an equal and has no need to guard its intent, unquote. Now, this echoes a view expressed by numerous China and Asia observers who believe that China feels that its time has come. Do you think that the leadership of Chinese President Xi Jinping reflects this view both in style and substance? I think it does, uh, very much so. I mean, the genesis of this a shift in strategy where China went from what was called hiding its capabilities, keeping a low profile, to becoming a much higher uh, profile actor in Asia was really the aftermath of the global financial meltdown when China took the view that the United States was in terminal decline and it was on the up and up forever. And it decided that it was going to be far more assertive about historical claims, which it has had for many years, um, and that it was time to become more aggressive and more assertive. And so it dropped what was known as its smile diplomacy. And this really spooked the region and, in a sense, drove many countries in the region into the arms of the U.S. It's still, it has since, I must say, in the last several years, somewhat modified that approach as it became pretty clear that it was counterproductive. Right. Do you Now, when this view from Beijing that the U.S. is in terminal decline, do you think that that view is still very strong now that the financial crisis is over and China's own economy has slowed a bit in recent years? 
Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think there may have been a sort of some slight modification of the hubris, but I think that China takes a very, very long-term view, and it is uh, looking 20, 30 years out. I think there's no question that China believes that it's on the up, and that the U.S. is uh, coming down, and that the U.S. will not be able forever to maintain the sort of force posture that it has, the sort of total dominance of the sea. Uh, and the air that it's enjoyed in this part of the world. And China is saying, look, you know, we, we want to push out against, push back against this Cold War order, which the U.S. has asserted in Asia, and which Chinese people very genuinely believe is intended to block China's rise and contain it. And do you think that right now in China, the leadership has begun to feel that China's rise can no longer be contained by the West. As you uh, mentioned earlier, in the past three and a half decades, a lot of Chinese leaders have emphasized China's peaceful rise and followed the foreign policy mantra of biding China's time and hiding its strength. But, but have they gotten to a point where they feel that the West can no longer contain their rise? Well, I certainly think that they've recognized quite accurately that the balance of power in this region is shifting. I mean, China's economy has been growing at double digits. Its defense spending has been growing uh, by the same order of magnitude over many years. It now has missiles, ships, submarines, and uh, stealth fighters, incredibly sophisticated military technology, and it's feeling its oats. And it is now in a position where it is absolutely able to influence U.S. calculations in the region, and you can see it testing again and again, testing U.S. alliances in Asia, testing the alliance with the Philippines, testing the alliance with uh, Tokyo. It's probing all the time. Right, right. And uh, Japan, obviously, is a country that is very concerned about China's rise. And in fact, uh, some of the problems that China has been having is precisely with these territorial disputes uh, in the East China Sea with Japan. Um, You've written that China's period of strength happens to be coinciding with a period of strength in Japan right now. and, And this happens to be a Japan that is tired of having to constantly apologize for its wartime sins, especially apologize to communist China. What effect do you think this phenomenon is likely to have on Sino-Japanese relations and on regional stability moving forward? Uh, very, very unpredictable. Actually, it, it, it really is quite worrying. I mean, it's a mixed bag of emotions, obviously, in Japan. But when you go there, you get very strongly the sense of nervousness, uh, dismay, um, and uh, frankly, fear. Um, You know, when they look at this dramatic turnaround in the balance of power in the region, I mean, when, when the Japanese bubble economy burst in the early 1990s, the Japanese economy was literally 10 times the size of the Chinese economy. And now this is a generation later, Japan's economy is just over half the size of China's. By 2020, China's economy could be two, three times bigger. And the Japanese are looking at this and looking at China's defense expenditure and saying, what is it all, what is it all aimed at? And, and, and at the same time, they're looking at their own weakness, two decades of stagnation. So there's a lot of hope in uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe that he's going to turn this around. 
Uh, and Abe himself is really feeding off this yearning uh, in Japan to sort of stop the rot uh, and to look to allow the nation for the first time in a long, long time to look forward instead of backward. And that's what I say the Japanese are fed up with looking backwards towards their sort of posture of contrition and humiliation and so on after the war. Uh, they actually believe they themselves uh, were a victim of that war along with many nations in, in, in Asia that they, of course, uh, are victimized, but they want, to move, they want to move ahead. And so when you see support for Shinzo Abe's visit for the Yasukuni Shrine, it's not at all, or not necessarily at all, because people in Japan think that he should be uh, going there to honor war criminals. But what they are saying is, we don't want China, and we don't want South Korea telling our prime minister where he can and can't go, and what he can and can't do. Japan wants to be a normal country. That's the sense you get sure. predominantly when you go there. Sure, and, and obviously the shrine is where uh, 14 Class A war criminals from World War II are, um, who, um, it's where their souls are enshrined. Um, uh, and obviously there are lots of Japanese who point to China's communist system and say, if you want to talk about a particular government killing the Chinese people. Look at just look at what the Chinese government has done to its own people, and that's something that I hear constantly from from Japanese citizens, either online or in person. But 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 um, l- let me use this occasion to raise uh, uh, a novel, uh, Nathaniel, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Um, now, in that particular novel, there's a clergyman who had an affair with the woman who ended up being punished for the affair, and, and and that woman had to wear the scarlet letter. And the clergyman said the following in the book, and he said, quote, of penance, I have had enough of penitence. There has been none. So when Japan says it's tired of saying sorry for its behavior in World War II, is Japan behaving rather like the clergyman in the scarlet letter? Or do you think it's at least reasonable for China and South Korea to see it that way? Look, I, I think the first thing to be said is that uh, Japanese apologies have not been consistent uh, and they have not been thoroughgoing. And so uh, they've been accompanied by other statements that suggest very strongly to Japan's neighbors that Japan isn't that sorry for the war. It was put to me by an academic in Tokyo that what Shinzo Abe is trying to say basically is we were bad during the war, but we weren't that bad. Right, and that's clearly not going over very well in Beijing or Seoul. Uh, it's not going over well in Beijing and Seoul. It's very interesting when you look at the... There's a real split now in Asia uh, as regards attitudes towards Japan between North Asia and the rest, um, so that it goes down shockingly badly for obvious reasons uh, in China, which was a primary victim of Japanese militarism and aggression during World War II and earlier. Um, don't forget the, world, the war in, in, in China began much earlier than, right, um, right. than, than World War II. But uh, in, in, in other parts of Asia, particularly in Southeast Asia, there's a real desire to see a stronger Japan, even a more militarily stronger Japan, to act as a counterbalance to China. And the fear of China trumps concerns about a revival of Japanese militarism.
Right. We are speaking with Andrew Brown, senior correspondent and columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Let's uh, shift to China's domestic reforms. Andy, you've written about the tensions between the individual and the state in China and that China is currently trying to advance both the power of the state and the freedom of the individual. Uh, what actions has Beijing taken to increase individual freedom um, and, and how is Beijing trying to enhance the power of the state at the same time? Um, well, I think when people talk about the freedom of the individual, one aspect of that that's very focused on is the freedom of migrant workers to be able to settle in the cities. And this is a, uh, depending how you measure it, 200, an army of 200, 250 million people that are not now allowed to work in the cities uh, but do not have the right of full citizenship to live in the cities to plug into the education social security system and so under these new reforms china has opened up its smaller cities second tier third tier cities to migration from these uh, by these workers um, as i said in a story i did about migrant children this is helpful but only up to a point because let's face it most of the jobs and certainly most of the attractive jobs are in first-tier cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and so on. And these cities are still very closed uh, to uh, migrant worker families. Right, right. And then there are also other measures that Beijing has, has agreed to take, such as loosening up the one-child policy and, and whatnot. And loosening then, up I, the one-child policy was another. The Another one was getting rid of this a detested, hated system of laojiao reform through education. Uh, but, you know, we've seen mixed signals on this, too. On the one hand, closing down these gulags, uh, which were basically or prim- primarily a place where uh, prostitutes ended up when they were arrested. And yet we've seen uh, in Dongguan, in Guangdong province, a renewed crackdown on prostitution accompanied by some really ugly behavior including prostitutes being paraded on CCTV, stigmatized for life uh, as a result of, 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 their, of their business. So, yes, uh, um, you know, more rights, more freedoms for the individual, uh, but by no means not unambiguous. Right, right. And, and Dongguan is uh, in Guangdong province in southern China, and it's actually uh, one of the cities that's uh, a manufacturing powerhouse in China. Um, well, But let me ask you this. Is, do you think the Chinese government really is increasing individual freedom, or is it just easing personal controls? And, and I know the two might look like one and the same, but maybe the question would make more sense if we were to hearken back to imperial China, where a good emperor is supposed to govern by wisdom and virtue and not by resorting to abusing or oppressing his citizens. But nevertheless, whatever rights his subjects have are granted by the emperor. They don't belong to the citizens. Um, Is President Xi Jinping merely trying to reform the Communist Party to rule like a good and virtuous emperor rather than a corrupt and tyrannical one? And, and I'm sorry, we have about yeah, 30 I, seconds left. <laughs> right. I, think it must, I think it must absolutely be said uh, that at the same time he's loosening up an internal migration, one-child family, he's cracking down very, very severely on voices that are out there publicly criticizing the government, including dissidents, including journalists, including bloggers, including even billionaire businessmen who dare to speak their minds. 
<laughs> right, right, and we've seen some news coverage of that recently. Well, we've been speaking with Andrew Brown of the Wall Street Journal. Andy, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. This is China Takes Over the World on RTHK, and I am Ying Ma.